Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming on the show today, our associate editor, Seth Barron, will talk with the newest member of the City Journal team, Charles McElwee. Charles joins us from Pennsylvania. He's our new assistant editor, and he's written a number of articles for the magazine already. Last spring, we published his first essay for City Journal, Chain Migration Comes to Hazleton, about the impact of chain migration on his working-class hometown in Pennsylvania. Then this past winter, he wrote The Battle for Rust Belt Catholicism, which was about the collapse of the Catholic Church in the region. Charles has also written for The Atlantic, National Review, The Weekly Standard, The American Conservative, and other publications. You can find him on Twitter, at C.F. McElwee. We're happy to have him on the team, very happy, in fact, and we hope our listeners enjoy a new voice on the podcast. That's it for me. Here's the conversation between Seth Barron and Charles McElwee, beginning after this. Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is your host for today, Seth Barron, Associate Editor for City Journal. Charles McElwee is an assistant editor at City Journal. He just started a few weeks ago. Uh, He's a native of Pennsylvania and has written extensively on economic development, demography, and culture in the Keystone State. A recent piece in the magazine is called The Battle for Rust Belt Catholicism. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Thank you for having me, Seth. So you make the point that the industrial Midwest has a long Catholic history, which I didn't really know very much about. But can you talk about how that came about and maybe the importance of the church to civic life? Yes. So the Catholic Church really shaped the civic life of industrial cities in the upper Midwest and Pennsylvania through the 20th century. And really in these neighborhoods and cities like Buffalo or Pittsburgh or Detroit, the church was the center of life. And that carried on through Vatican II and its reforms in the early 1960s, and really through its industrial decline that was occurring in so many of these communities. And if counted today, Catholics would be considered the, ex-Catholics would be considered the second largest denomination in the United States. But at one point, their ancestors were the majority of um, among Christian denominations in this region, and they really left a strong legacy that lingers despite its decline. Are, are these Irish Americans, or where, 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 where did they come from? So the really Irish and German Catholics cut the ribbon on American Catholicism in the mid to late 19th century, and it was uh, really industry-based towns that drew these immigrants to um, neighborhoods in cities where they formed Irish or German or Eastern or Southern European Catholic churches later on in the late 1800s or early 1900s. But yes, so uh, Catholics, Catholic immigrants, when they arrived in these industrial cities where they worked in as miners or in factories, they established parishes that revolved around their, not only their religion, but their ethnicity. The church was the processing center for the immigrants. And while an industry may have assimilated uh, the immigrant into American life, it was the church that 
while preserving their culture, also served as a source of assimilation, whether it was through its school or fraternal organizations. I see. Um, And in your piece, you talk about some of the challenges facing Catholic churches in Pennsylvania and the old industrial Midwest. So can you describe what's happening? Yes. So last year, uh, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro released a large report uh, recounting the abuse that had, go on, had gone on in the Catholic Church of Pennsylvania in uh, six of the eight dioceses in the state. And the details were horrific and disillusioned countless Catholics, who um, some who consider themselves ex-Catholics, others who remain devout. It, there was a unanimous uh, disgust over the details. And Really, uh, these are the sex abuse, the sex abuse scandals, correct. And it was a cataclysmic moment for the Catholic Church at an international level, similar to what happened in 2002 with the Spotlight investigative series that was part of the Boston Globe and later uh, portrayed in the Spotlight, the Oscar winning movie. But the uh, the church. It is a strong base in Pennsylvania. Uh, Catholics account for the majority among denominations in the state, and there, and there are many Catholic-based communities throughout uh, Pennsylvania and the Rust Belt. And the piece was focusing on how Rust Belt Catholics are responding to this scandal. We're seeing uh, dwindling congregations, churches that are closing, dioceses that are just facing insurmountable debt, all driven by the sex abuse crisis. And I mean, Pittsburgh alone, uh, the Pittsburgh Diocese has 600,000 Catholics. On a typical weekend, they may draw maybe uh, 120,000 Catholics to Mass. So uh, the stats speak for themselves. But in response to this, a number of um, grassroots space initiatives are taking place in cities like Buffalo and Detroit where um, they form mass mobs, which are akin to the cash mobs that support small businesses. Mass mobs are social media-driven events where they promote that a mass will be held in a historic parish that may be closed or is closing uh, or facing dwindling uh, numbers in its congregation. And they typically draw large turnouts. So uh, St. John Canty in Buffalo, for example, um, has drawn up to 800 people to its Sunday Mass. And it, it serves an important purpose when it raises money for these historic churches that are really priceless. And um, it also reacquaints Catholics with their ancestral roots. And um, really, it, it, it's a reinvigorating experience, and it has proven successful. So despite all the challenges in the church— uh, it, the, what people forget is, uh, you know, in some of these neighborhoods in struggling Rust Belt cities, the church serves as an important economic development source. It uh, has—the church may have a soup kitchen, daycare uh, services, etc., that provide a service to the impoverished neighborhood, and a mass mob keeps the church open through the money that it raises. But, I mean— I understand that the sex abuse scandals have uh, driven some people away from the church, but surely the problems uh, with attendance must go deeper than that. I mean, you can go around Washington Heights and see old synagogues, say, 
that were very vital at one point, and now they've been repurposed and they're Pentecostal churches or uh, things like that. So, but that's largely a function of, well, people maybe, maybe this was a very Jewish neighborhood and then people moved away. So, you know, could, isn't some of this like, you know, maybe uh, Scranton or Buffalo, people uh, have just moved away and it doesn't have the same um, base in some cases, absolutely, and you're right. I mean, uh, Lutheran churches are closing. I know recently most of the United Methodist churches in the city of Harrisburg closed, and all historic structures, uh, but all with dwindling congregations. But in some cases, um, you you are seeing the mass closure or consolidation of Catholic churches in regions where there is a strong, strongly devout Catholic base. So, for example, the Panther Valley in Carbon County, Pennsylvania, in, in the heart of the Anthracite Coal region. The Diocese of Allentown closed 11 Catholic churches in, in, ta- in the towns that line that valley, towns like Summit Hill, Lan- Lansford, and it's, uh, the, the valley now has only one church. But it's, a, it, it's still, despite population loss, there is a very devout Catholic population there that practices. And they are down to one church, and the elderly population is not attending because anybody who knows Northeastern Pennsylvania knows it has terrible weather, and the church has proven to be inaccessible. The one that was kept open, um, St. Joseph's, is considered inaccessible uh, to reach for the elderly, and it only intensifies the sense of disillusionment that these people already have. Um, now the, the diocese is considering the demolition of um, one, one of the historic churches, St. Catherine Drexel. And really, the, um, recently, a, a local paper recounted what one woman said. She said, this is our Notre Dame. And when you hear those statements, um, you just realize in these economically depressed regions, the church is often the only thing they have. And that's where uh, the diocese of Allentown, like so many, could be more sensitive to how they handle these closures. While many are inevitable, they could have been gradually carried out rather than happened all at once. Um, well, this is kind of a segue to an earlier piece you wrote, but um, like in New York City, for example, uh, there are uh, Catholic churches that are still Catholic churches, but you know they've become. Um, you know, dedicated to the Virgin of Guadalupe or to various Latin American saints as the population has changed uh, through immigration from Latin America. Uh, so are is there the chance that some of these dioceses could be saved by uh, immigration from, you know, Latinos, basically, who tend to go to church a lot? Uh, and I know that you've written about immigration into Hazelden, which has been a mixed bag. But I don't know if you want to talk about your Hazelden piece and maybe how the Catholic Church would tie into that. Sure. So Hazelden, Pennsylvania, uh, part of the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre-Hazelden corridor, experienced profound demographic change over a short period of time. So in 2000, it had less than a 1% Latino population, and today is nearly 60%. And it's principally driven by uh, Latino migration from the New York metropolitan area. So second to third generation Dominican-Americans who lived in uh, Washington Heights or in Patterson, New Jersey, 
and moved to Hazleton in the 2000s for a better quality of life, better schools, cheaper housing, uh, employment opportunities. I mean, to give perspective, uh, the police chief of Patterson, Jerry Speziali, is also the police chief of Hazleton. So that gives you an idea of really uh, the, the ties that Hazleton has to the New York metro area today. But uh, when it comes to Latino migration and its ties into the church, it depends on um, it, really the, the, the Latino group. I mean, Dominican-Americans, for example, are often Pentecostal. So they may open a Pentecostal church, as you referenced, in an old Protestant denomination or closed Catholic church. In Hazleton, uh, many Dominicans uh, attend St. Gabriel's Church, which was an Irish parish founded in the early 1850s by uh, Bishop John Newman, who's a canonized saint in the church. Uh, he established a church for um, immigrants from County Donegal, Ireland, uh, who arrived in Hazleton to work in the anthracite coal mines. It was an Irish parish through the 20th century. Uh, Digger Phelps, the Notre Dame basketball coach and uh, later on in the 20th century, he, was, he started his career at St. Gabriel's as a high school uh, basketball coach, and he put shamrocks on the students' uniforms saying, someday I'll coach at Notre Dame, and he was right. But uh, today it's a d largely Dominican parish. And so, yes, uh, in some cases, uh, churches are, are, are given new life when immigrants come in, uh, but it really depends on the demographics of any town. So Hazleton, in Hazleton's case, largely Dominican population, St. Gabriel's is, has a, is the largest parish in the city, while other Catholic churches are closed. But typically, among many Latino groups, it's um, they're, they're Protestant den denominations or, or Pentecostal that open in these uh, churches. Oh, that's an interesting wrinkle. Um, so... Well, so maybe some of the Catholic churches have benefited from all of this uh, migration into Hazelden. Uh, what are some of the challenges, let us say? So Hazelden uh, has been shaped by its melting pot history. It was always a city of immigrants, and Hazelden was not just a mining town. It was a commercial center for the silk industry. Really, in many ways, it was a mi miniature Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, it once had the world's largest silk mill that also drew immigrants. Uh, so w with the, the rapid migration in the 2000s, uh, it was just really the city was ill-prepared to absorb such rapid change. So yes, Hazleton is defined by its immigrant past. At one point, over 30 languages were spoken on uh, Hazleton city streets, and we're only talking about six square miles to give perspective. But... Um, in in the the school district, for example, uh, they their ESL program had a minuscule budget in 1999 2000s, uh, so they were ill prepared to hire the ESL teachers to keep pace with the uh, number of new students coming in from the New York metropolitan area or from the Dominican Republic, and today that's a challenge just having enough ESL teachers to keep pace with the number of students coming in. Uh, the city, in turn, uh, was struggling with the services and needs to provide with s such a profound demographic change, keeping up with uh, the demand of municipal resources. And uh, Jerry Speziali has proven invaluable because he, of his understanding of uh, Hazelson's demographics based on his experience in Patterson. 
But uh, really, Hazleton is a lesson that in just so many cities are, are ill-prepared for demographic change, especially those that are economically depressed. It's not to suggest that um, immigration is, is negative uh, for a community. It's just that certain communities are, are, are not equipped to provide the services that may come with immigration. Now, Hazleton uh, got into some trouble uh, legally some time ago when they uh, tried to pass some legislation that would uh, either – well, it wouldn't restrict immigration, but it would ha- basically uh, restrict – well, why don't you explain what the law was? Sure. In the summer of 2006, Lou Barletta, who was mayor of Hazleton, passed an ordinance that made it illegal for employers to hire illegal immigrants and for landlords to rent to, or to, to, rent to them. And the ordinance was challenged by the ACLU and subsequently went through the federal court process all the way to the Supreme Court. Hazleton lost, the, uh, and th- there was a cost to it, a $1.2 million price tag to be paid to the ACLU for its expenses, so it proved costly to the city of Hazleton. But really, um, Barletta's stance on the immigration issue, and especially what he saw in Hazleton, prefigured what we would later on discuss during the Trump era, especially 2015-2016 with the presidential race. Uh, Hazleton and and Luzerne County, where Hazleton is, was a microcosm of so many of the uh, socioeconomic trends driving Trump's base. And that's why uh, Luzerne County uh, proved invaluable to Trump election night 2016 because uh, it f- fueled 60% of Trump's winning margin in Pennsylvania that evening. And this is a historically Democratic county, one that uh, where people continue to vote for Democrats at the state and local level, but when it came to Trump, they went Republican. And, um, and that's why uh, Hazleton, with that immigration battle, uh, it, it really shows you the, the relevance of that issue with his base. And Barletta, of course, went on to run for U.S. Senate uh, against Bob Casey this past year, but did lose. Well, as Luzerne goes, so goes the nation, I guess. Um, thanks so much, Charles. It was a fascinating conversation. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter at City Journal, hashtag 10blocks. If you like our show and want to hear more of it, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. This is your host, Seth Barron. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Seth. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.